Hello, Alaska. This is Pat Race. And this is Matt Buxton. And this is a podcast about Alaska. Thank you, Matt Buxton and members of the 2023 listening audience. We gather on this the first Sunday past Marmot Day to establish a tradition. The State of the Pizza Address. Much like the State of the State or the State of the Judiciary, this speech is a chance to reflect on the year past and the many years ahead for HelloAlaska.Pizza, our podcast about policy, people, and the identity of Alaska. First, I want to recognize my wife of five years and several months, Marion Call. Marion composed I Wish I Were a Real Alaskan Girl, which we have excerpted and adopted as our theme song. I'd also like to recognize my partner in podcasting, Matt Buxton. Matt, can you please stand to be recognized? You, you don't actually have to stand up. <laughs> Gestured. Thank you for everything you're doing for the state of Alaska and for the people of Alaska. Your work as a journalist documenting public meetings has brought important issues to the surface and contextualized important but very, 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 very boring public meetings. In particular, the depth of your coverage of the redistricting process this past year was unparalleled and invaluable to the state. Thank you. Tonight, as I stand before you, Matt, and the great people of Alaska regarding the state of our podcast, there is much to be thankful for. Foremost, we are thankful for our excellent listeners and friends to the show. The state of the podcast is strong. Alaska strong. We are on our 75th episode, with good tape in the hoppers. Important voices, not our own. We have a steady group of listeners, and I am always surprised by the quality of the characters we have attracted to our casual banterings about policymaking. Just last week, we received a letter from a listener in Chicago that spoke of living in the Midwest and missing the conversations about what's happening in the legislature, the assembly, and the community at large. Our young friend writes that Hello Alaska made him feel like he was back home more than just about anything else. As I walk the streets of Juneau during the legislative session, I am always surprised by the number of policymakers and leaders who count themselves as friends of the show. But more interesting to me are the small folk, the workaday people who steadily turn the wheels of government and society despite the changing cast of political characters. Teachers, activists, state workers, and nonprofit do-gooders all working quietly towards a better future for this state. I hope our casual unpacking of policy is a service, a gut check, a welcome jostle of perspective. We all, each of us, have a chance every day to very lightly nudge the course of Alaska's history through our community conversations. And it's an honor to have shared this conversation with you, Matt, since 2015. We live in such a small state that the voice of a single person can make a huge difference. We just have to use those voices. And here's to the many voices of Alaska and the power that even the smallest voice has at the right time. And that's when the uh, audience applause uh, happens there at the end. <laughs> Uh, anyways, yeah. So that's that's uh, the state of the pizza address that I that I wrote frantically this morning before we got together. It was, it was a good, uh, worthwhile thirty minute uh, delay. Pat, yeah. I'm oh my gosh! I think we we talked about this. I didn't really know what Pat was doing for this, which is not unusual, right? Pat usually gets these little ideas in his head and runs away with them. And we had talked about doing my sour apples uh, response, but I don't know if I could, I don't want to like 
joke around with that now. I think it was. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't uh, too too vague. It was not enough specific policies. <laughs> devils in the details. Yeah, we'll devils in what. the details. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, no, Pat. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head with that. I mean, I think that I just count myself lucky that I get to do this with you. Uh, I think that you know, uh, time and again, you've shown yourself to be a thoughtful, empathetic, and earnest and honest sort of person. And I think that is exactly, you know, the kind of person that I, I couldn't do this in, you know, with anybody else, I think. And so I think that your reflections have pushed our policy conversations forward, but also really pushed me uh, forward in my creative and professional life. Uh, you know, we've, I mean, I'm, I'm on the other side right now of a big tumult in my life. And yeah. uh, I don't think you know, and I'm coming out of it in a way that uh, I feel a lot more optimistic and energized and excited. And a lot of that is because of the conversations uh, we've had together with it. And, you know, I'll be frank, you know, there was you know, one of the plans, one of the things we talked about was maybe there's the hello Alaska thing becomes bigger. And I think one of the things that um, I keep in mind, you know, we've been doing this podcast for eight years now yeah seven a long and a half time or yeah. yeah and uh is that the alaska is a long memoried place with a lot of opportunities and and you know whether or not this podcast is what we do or you know in a few years it's something else i think that's what is great about all of this and so just thank you pat thank you yeah. for for all of this and for pushing me forward i think there's so many uh, so much of this, my own sort of situation is, is pushing my comfort levels. And a lot of it is because y- you maybe better than most, uh, know where my discomfort levels are yeah. and are able to like, you know, push me forward and, and kind of push me out of the comfort area and into something that's challenging and new. And so, uh, thank you. And, and I'm sure there are, are many other people out there that can, you know, probably say the same thing about Pat pushing them out of the nest. That was an incredible response, uh, just right off the top of your head. That was good. I yeah. always thought that response would be really hard to give because uh, you know you've just heard the speech and then now you have to make up a like <laughs> this is this is what I think. I got to pretend um, that I was actually listening. That's the. Yeah. <laughs> I did think about. I, I was going to add a a bit at the end where I went off script and talked about babies, but I didn't. I'm the you no. Know, this is we're going to make Alaska the most pro Warhammer state in the universe in the, <laughs> <laughs> had the most warhammer models of anywhere so what's uh what's up with the legislature this week well uh <laughs> well so we had actually so the first thing i do the when we're speaking of state of the states and state of the judiciaries uh the first thing i do want to recognize is um chief justice daniel winfrey gave his uh farewell address this this week, um, mm-hmm. he uh, has been chief, he's been on the Alaska Supreme Court for 15 years. He's the first Alaska-born Supreme Court justice. You know, he calls himself a kid from Fairbanks because he was. You know, he he was a teenager, I think, when everything was sort of coming together. Uh, now he's turning 70 this week, and so it marks his the end of his term under the Con- Alaska Constitution. And you know, it was possibly the best state of the anything address that I've heard. Um, in the legislature of my time covering it in the last 10 years, last 11, 12 years. Yeah. And, you know, so he basically, there's sort of two points that he hit. And, and the first point that um, is one that he sort of had throughout his time as, as chief justice, which is really 
like recognizing and appreciating like Alaska's children of all, you know, of all ages, right. Of, of being able to give back to their state and, and, and make the state better in, in whatever way that they can. And I think that just hearing that from somebody like that at the top of, you know, one of our branches of government, I think is so, so important because I think, you know, you look around right now and it does, I think you, you feel a lot of hopelessness, I think among young people and, but at the same time, you see a lot of hope, right? You, you know, the, some of the most active people I see trying to change things and make things better are young people who, you know, are seeing that things are not the way that they want them to be and are, are trying to make that better where, wherever, you know, wherever they can, whether that's feeding people, whether that's being engaged, whether that's doing whatever, right? And so that point, I think, was really, really good. Um, the other point that I think was so good is that, you know, he really confronted the battle over the judicial independence in a way that I think, you know, is a little, little uncomfortable, right? I think it's, you know, it's probably, it's, it's a position that he can approach because he's retiring a week after he gives his speech, but he basically approaches the legislators and says, you know, look, there's, you and us approach things in two different ways that, you know, justices and judges take it extraordinarily seriously to be, putting aside their personal opinions, to be putting aside the opinions of their friends, of their constituents, and they're looking at the rule of law and how that applies to these sort of situations. Whereas politicians, like he called it a transactional lens where they are quite literally trading votes or they are you know, listening to whatever the way the wind blows on what they're doing and he connected it to, look, you know, I know what the dish, uh, definition of an activist judge is. It's somebody who doesn't rule the way you want him to rule. And then he turned that around and said, look, I know there are some of you in the legislature, some of you here today who don't believe in an independent judiciary. They want to pass policies that allow politicians to control judges and basically give them rulings that they want. And I don't know, I think it was to me one of the most stark and like powerful defenses of the judiciary that I've heard. And yeah. I think it, you know, it comes at a time too where it you know, it kind of pulls the mask off a little bit of these efforts to, to politicize it. And I think um, I think it was just it was just very good to see in here. And I think, you know, a lot of those points, too, as, as somebody who really just like wants, you know, I want I'm here for, as an Alaskan for the long term. Right. And I want this place to be like good and happy and healthy with opportunities for everybody. And that kind of message, I think, like to me, is really affecting. Yeah. I, I really like that piece about the transactional nature of, of uh, you know political work and how it isn't the same. And I, I think that is a that is something that you get into a a, a mindset on. You you operate in a certain way and you assume everyone else operates in the same way as you. And this is what it means to be human, right? But, I, yeah. but to to have a profession that is that is inherently designed to isolate decision making and work in a non-transactional he did a really good job of explaining how the process works too like when mm -hmm. he talked about how the court gets together and meets and how um, they don't talk to each other unless they're all there how things are documented and it was just it was a nice look at the process too it comes at a time too right where you know the governor has proposed changes to how we select judges or legislators that are really keen on that too I think the, the Senate majority had a news conference where they were asked about their response to it. And, you know, 
everyone across the board uh, in that majority was saying, yeah, we like it the way it is. We like to keep politics out of the justice system. And I think when you have kind of that really well, um, you know, laid out process, it makes it easier to understand. This idea of activist judges is a idea that, you know, a lot of those legislators, some of those legislators at least, have a role in like amplifying that message and have been painting that false narrative. And I think being able to kind of just to really examine it all is good. And I think, it, and, you know, it pulls it back because, you know, we haven't really ever heard a really good uh, explanation of how the justices reach their decisions, right? It has kind of been this sort of like vague system and being able to at least like talk about it, you know, kind of shines a light on it in a way that is harder makes it harder for people to like fill it in with their own narrative. Was there a house response as well or just the Senate? No, no, okay. no, they don't yeah. have any responses. The other thing that, Oh, what was the other thing that I wanted to point out? Oh, so we touched on it last week, the makeup of the house committees. Right. And you know, my thesis here is basically like, it's not going to be as bad as we expected, which is, you know, everything's relative, right. You know, uh, it doesn't mean it's going to be necessarily like really good, but so basically, right, the, this, the House organized around a Republican majority. I think there was a lot of instant hot takes, basically, that was like, oh, my God, this is going to be the worst thing ever. They're, they're putting Jamie Allard in charge of a committee. They're putting Sarah Vance in charge of a committee. And, like, yes, those are, you know, those aren't great situations. Maybe not it's, ideal. Yeah, Not ideal. You know, like, we, we just got done with the land of Reinboldia of the Senate, you know, Senator Laura Reinbold in charge of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And, you know, that created a, a, a lot of attention. But so this week, this pension bill, it's the pension bill for firefighters and public peace officers. It's basically uh, going from the 401k style retirement to sort of traditional public pension plan. And, you know, it's something that people have been looking for for a very long time. It's, like, been on the wish list of most people for, like, 10, 15 years. Basically, since they made the change, there's been calls to return us back to it. And so, you know, it made an appearance in the House Community and Regional Affairs Committee and advanced out of committee this week. And the why I think it's, like, really interesting to talk about is that this is, like, Republicans have sort of reflexively been opposing this policy measure for a really long time. And what we saw in this committee was that the Republicans of the past, kind of, of the, the you know, Representative Kevin McCabe of Big Lake and Tom McCabe of Anchorage, these are kind of been here for a while-ish now, like uh, one term before, but... Yeah. Uh, and But they but they were, like, you know, they were complaining about everything they could about this bill. You know, it's too fast, it's, we can't study it, we, we're being surprised by it, you know, the teachers might want it, all these different kind of every there's, single there's sort of be a lawsuit. Yeah, there's going to be lawsuits about it. And I think it you know, really comes down to the fact that they just don't believe in a public pension plan. Right. Yeah. And that and so but what's interesting to me about it is that the you know, that in previous years, in previous sort of organizations would have been the end of it. Right. This bill wouldn't have ever been heard. But because you have this committee that's chaired by actually a Democrat, C.J. McCormick of Bethel, and you have some moderate Republicans on it who won because of ranked choice voting in the open primary system. There's actually the votes to move it forward. There's votes to like make it work. And and so what we saw is in committee, um, 
Representative Justin Ruffridge, he's a Republican out of Soldatna, kind of seen as the moderate, seen as, you know, if the if there was going to be a bipartisan coalition, he was going to be, you know, the nexus of that. But, you know, I think he recognizes that there's a huge retention and recruitment problem in Alaska. And, you know, he's not fully on board with like a completely like super good plan for everybody, but he like recognizes it's a problem and is willing to work on it. And because of that, this legislation didn't die. It, you know, he got it got his vote to move it forward. There's still three more committees of referral, so it's like be clear this is a very like uphill course on this. But to me, it's a sign that like there's some good policy, good pieces of policy that can still move forward in this. And so, you know, again, it's all relative, right? I think that that's like the really key element here is that this policy is still far from passing. But the fact that it's moving at all, to me, speaks to, you know, I think it's like the edge of a new political reality a little bit that, you know, you have these more moderate legislators in there who... It's not like a lockstep majority. It's a a little bit of a fragmented majority. And there's some, it looks like there's some things that portions of the majority are going to be okay with working with the minority on passing out a committee at least and so yeah who knows what that turns into on the floor like where the hard lines will be drawn but really as as we understand or as i understand it the the hard lines on the floor are really around the budget and so a bill like this might be able to make it through yeah that to me is what you know the main takeaway in all of this is that these lines is sort of like ideological control is is not nearly as as strong or as even a you know, present as they have been in the past. And yeah. and just how that all plays out, right, we're still at the beginning of the story. But Right. Will they get uh, everyone to, like, jump in line, or will it continue to fragment further? Yeah. Do the people who, who opposed a bill like this feel like they were not served well by their majority coalition partners, and how does that turn into, you know, what does that mm-hmm. turn into down the road? And it'll be interesting to see what happens, you know, the other big element that came out this week was the Senate rolled out its proposal for the increase to school funding. They called it the bold proposal. Basically is, you know, catches up with inflation and then like a little bit extra. And, um, you know, they're, they're very clear that it's, you know, the start of a conversation, not the end of it, blah, blah, blah. I like that they use that language, by, by the way. I like that they use the, the Dunleavy, like, we're just starting a conversation language for something yeah. that's, like, like not destroying the state. Yeah. But it's like, we're hey, listen, convers- what, if, what if we funded education? That's the conversation. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, that's the other area. But, you know, when you start to kind of, like, look at the committees where it's going to go through like you can start to kind of see the votes between the moderate or the Democrats and the the minority and some of the moderate Republicans being able to push these things in the direction they want. And, you know, whether that all bottlenecks at the rules committee, that the committee that schedules what bills get heard on the floor, I think that's going to be like a really interesting thing to watch. But the idea that we're going from sort of fatalism about a new house the House Republican majority to, hey, there's these like moderate to progressive legislation that's, a, you know, has a shot, I think is, that's better than we were, a week, you know, two weeks ago, or better than what most people were expecting about two weeks ago. And so right. there's just still kind of this assumption that because it's a Republican majority that they'll all be in Republican lockstep. And I think that is sort of what we're finding here is that, you know, as soon as you sort of start to break the seal on like the the control that the Republican primary voters have, and you have all of a sudden the entire district selecting people, 
I, I think that the calculus changes very quickly. Yeah. So I uh, attended one of the education uh, Senate Education Committee meetings this week uh, to give testimony, and I talk, I've talked about this before here, but uh, I just kind of talked about my sister's desire to move to Alaska and teach here, and how it's really not competitive. But I, you know, when I sit in these meetings, one of the things I do try to do is listen to what people say that disagree with me. I, I want to understand why why they disagree with me, and sometimes there's really good. Uh, hard questions in there that I haven't considered, and that's part of why they're coming at it from a different angle. Um, one of the voices I heard give testimony was basically saying that the reason our education system costs so much is that we're not just educating children, that we're providing all of these social services. And I was, and I was thinking, yes, we are, and that's a valid criticism of like, you know, you're not just funding education, you're funding a lot more than education. But that's kind of the social structure that we've built in Alaska is that all mm-hmm. of these social needs have no other, there's no other social safety net aside from the school system. And so all of a sudden education becomes kind of a secondary concern, you know, when, you're, when your mandate is so much broader. Our schools are feeding children. Our schools are mm-hmm. pro- putting a roof over their head during the day, providing essentially providing childcare in a lot of cases, providing services to uh, people with disabilities, all kinds of uh, things that go beyond just education. You know, even even extracurricular activities like you know health and wellness and school sports and there's just so much more there than sitting in a classroom and learning how to do math and learning how to read a book and that gets to this fundamental question of like, what do we want our schools to be? And like, I don't think that's something that the legislature is really taking up right now, but I think that, you know, for this person, for a particular set of people in Alaska, I think it's important to decide, you know, do you want schools to pick up this load or are you looking to create a different service that carries some of that burden for the schools, so the schools can focus on education or are you just advocating for like throwing people out in the street that uh, you know don't have the same family structure that some of us yeah. maybe were lucky enough to grow up with right and so these kids need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps right and so that's kind of what comes through from that and i don't think you don't get to really debate other people who are giving testimony but but it was but i think that if i had something to to ask of that woman that would be the thing i would ask is like what her proposal is for those essential services we do provide in the school Um, because yeah it's a huge cost i mean i think that that you know you talk to any teacher right and you know it's a massive amount of social work that they are are providing especially in you know in certain schools and like i have a couple friends who their students you know the the only time their students are for sure getting fed is at a school right or you know they're making sure that the you know OCS is is you know being alerted to these things that you know, a lot of these kids like don't have a lot of people out there advocating for them and this idea that we would take that away from them is it's to me is is just is is grim i guess yeah. you know this conversation about education funding kind of is the really the first time we're we're having a clear dividend or what else you know yeah. kind of conversation it's kind of where this is going to eventually lead is like you know do we pay out a big dividend or education and kind of the, the debate up until now has really been you know do we pay out a big dividend or we do do we pay for nebulous government policy 
you, you mentioned OCS, and I think that's an interesting thing, too, because, like, maybe for this criticism of we're paying too much for education, if you if you carved off all of those social services and put them under OCS, you know, it would be a real crystal clear picture of what we actually are paying for education. And I bet it wouldn't yeah. be as, as much as we think it is. And I think that that's, right. you know, that's part of this public perception problem is that we're being told it costs this much per student to educate our children, but that's not what it's being used for right it's cost it, right. it, it a percent a large percentage of that is not being used for education and to and i don't know that this is a good legislative solution but maybe you know what if what if it was ocs that was funded to to do all this school you know f- food in the school and and better check-ins and all this stuff you know if we if we actually put the money in into the right bucket so that it couldn't be miscategorized and used as an argument against funding education I don't know. It 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 feels like it's a tough thing because we've we've put all of these social services and education into the same little line item. Well, and I think that's yeah. Big, I mean, but, you know, <laughs> I think the the problem is is you know you're trying to debate somebody who really isn't being totally serious, right? Like they're they're. Well, I think they are being position. serious. I think this they're is being a serious ser- in that in that they don't they just don't view this as an important thing to fund to yeah. the level that it should be funded at and and so they're looking for ways oh i can't believe that they're feeding the kids there like well i don't I, 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 I just i don't know what you know are they ever are they ever gonna change their mind or are they gonna find some other different reason to oppose education funding because sure. i guess that's kind of what it is felt like you know this last week watching the pension bill right is that Every single point that McCabe brought up against the pension bill was rebutted, but then he just shifted to something else. Yeah. And that's kind of, you know, that's sort of how some of these folks sort of seem to operate is that, you know, it's just sort of reflexive opposition to it. You know, can, and, can we and play that clip that, that you um, posted? There was the, uh, um, you, you had a couple clips, but I think that they really paint this picture better than, you know, like better than we can describe. I think that just listening to the, a couple pieces of audio from this week would be really beneficial. Yeah. Okay. Let me pull it up. So uh, during the, the House Community and Regional Affairs hearing, um, you know, it was, it was getting, they were getting really wrapped around the axle on some sort of complaint that McCabe had about process. Uh, Representative Rebecca Hemshoot, an independent from Sitka, also you know, former teacher of the year, um, you know, member of board of education has an idea about some of this stuff. Uh, but also as a freshman legislator, you know, is, is basically telling him to like, Hey, we've, we've done this before. We've, we've got this all. Um, so here we go. Oh, I was just going to, on this amendment point out, I think this bill was pre-filed. So we've, we've had quite a bit of time to get our ducks lined up, but I'm new to this. It just seems like we've been here for a while. So <laughs> thank you. Uh, Vice Chairman McCabe. Yeah, so pre-filing a bill doesn't mean it's necessarily ever even going to be heard in committee. So you don't spend a whole bunch of time, I I get that you're new, and you don't spend a whole bunch of time engaging the state ledge finance and all those, engaging the state resources for a bill that doesn't come to committee. So this this bill for the public, it's a little unusual to hear a bill like this and to see it pushed through in the very first week of... of, um, especially an important this is a hugely important it's a huge bill as well and to see it sort of jammed into our um into our committee in the first week was surprising to many of us so even though it was pre-filed we might have looked at it 
but to see it in through committee. Through the chair, it did, it did pass the House twice before, so. Well, but I get what you're saying. Yeah. Thank you. Passed the House once before that I know of in this form. It was kind of cringy and disrespectful and weird, um, but but the, the, the idea that he hasn't had time to prepare for this is really like that's kind of on him right it's not like this is like the fourth or fifth hearing that this committee's had on this bill too what it really shows to me is that mccabe hasn't been in the majority before and it shows right right you know this is a guy who you know is basically his entire political career has been reflexively opposing any sort of policy that progressives are are proposing and and so when he's in charge, he still is doing that. And, you know, he's he's in he's the vice chair of this committee. He's in a position to greatly influence how this bill comes out if he's willing to engage in it. But instead, he's like just finding complaints and complaints to, to go against it. And actually, so this other clip that I'll play shortly is from the hearing before this exchange between the bill sponsor, Representative Andy Josephson and McCabe. This is sort of. McCabe has sort of been constantly, you know, doubting any sort of data or, or, or information that's been coming forward. And basically what people have been saying is that, hey, not having a good pension plan is a real deterrent for keeping around people, especially when they don't have Social Security. So the chances that they'll like have a secure retirement is like very low, like right like that. You're gambling, basically, if you're staying with the state. And also like lower 48 police stations and fire departments all understand this. Right. And they have been actively uh, recruiting Alaskans. And so it's not like super duper quantifiable, right? It's not like we can necessarily like point at it because, hey, there's a lot of reasons people leave, right? And and they might not say it all. And so basically McCabe is sort of latched onto that point as the main, he's like, oh, well, you can't for sure say it is the problem are, are, you know, there's basically nobody from the ages of like 25 to 35 in state employment right now. Even though that's what the fire departments and police departments are telling us. Yeah. Even though it's like literally what they're telling us. And then the other issue too, that is he like keeps on coming back to is that, you know, so the, the state talks about the costs to train and recruit people is somewhere between a hundred thousand and $200,000. And his point is, well, it didn't cost that much for Boeing to to, you know to to train me so therefore they must be lying and so it's it's so wild is that like his quibbling with all this is anecdotal right like he's demanding he's saying that there's not firm evidence but then he replies with like completely anecdotal anyways so i think you can might even hear a little bit of the same frustration in representative josephson's takeaway from this clip here so i think we said last year 100 or last time one hundred to two hundred thousand dollars to train a new employee, and based on what I saw last night, from the numbers that came to us, that's just not true. So, is it possible? Do you think from the DPS and from the fire department and from APDEA to get some real numbers instead of these sort of fake numbers, so we can make an intelligent decision? Sure, um, Mr. Chair, uh, through the chair, Vice Chair McCabe, uh, it's eight ten a.m. on a Tuesday. Um, you have just, uh, in a very derogatory fashion, attacked as essentially deceitful every public safety agency in the state. Is that what you want to do this morning? Well, uh, through the chair, I appreciate it, Representative Josephson. I appreciate your comments, but we have to make a decision here that's going to affect the lives of Alaskans for decades and the budget of Alaskans for decades and the numbers that we're getting to make those decisions on are incorrect. 
So am I supposed to just sit here and tell my 18,000 or 20,000 constituents that I made a decision to vote for HB 22, which, which is obviously a, an issue based on a, on a set of incorrect numbers or a set of numbers that are not proper? I, up through the chair. I mean, it's the most like Andy Joseph. If you guys have been paying attention to Andy Josephson, it's like the most Andy Josephson burn. That's him, that's him like heard. standing on like, a desk and, and shaking his fist. That's like, <laughs> and he doesn't like. He's not a particularly like you know hot tempered right. legislator. So him sort of like doing that is about as hot tempered as he's. This is a guy who, who quotes yeah. Shakespeare on the House floor. So I don't know. I mean, I think there's another exchange that I don't have a tape for, but that where Representative McCabe is basically talking about how he knows that. Uh, 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 police are, are 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 working overtime to try to boost their their, their retirement numbers, and, right. and they're falling asleep in their squad cars. And basically, he's kind of like calling them out as a bunch of like crooks, you know, scamming the system. And Representative Justin Refridge, you know, Republican, basically says, like, hold up, like you're accusing all police officers of being crooks and putting the public safety at risk. Is that what you're trying to say? And he kind of gets the same, oh, 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 I don't know. You know, that's not what I was saying. But, you know, it, it I think it, it, it is, you know, it's just, it's just really, I mean, it, this is a guy who thought he was going to be rules chair committee uh, chair. He thought he was going to be majority leader, all this sort of stuff. And, and, and I think he's kind of been sidelined and, and to see the kind of, blathering and bloviating is it's just been really interesting um interesting guy i actually i actually read a um i actually read a op-ed he wrote on this issue and it seems like one of his big concerns is that giving this sort of retirement benefit system to firefighters and state troopers would open the door for a lawsuit from other state employees and from teachers um that basically want parity uh, to which I say, I say, I think, and most people actually that are, are putting, even Representative Josephson included, go, good. Yeah. Good. They, they do deserve it. They do, you know, like, I think they, they sort of recognize that this is like, you know, the first step in the door here, right? Every, I think that's everybody's sort of yeah. thinking on it. But it's like, it, it's, a, it's a problem, right? Like, there, I know several of my teacher friends, some of them that are incredibly hard workers who, you know, are that, you know, frequently that one, that kid's one advocate in life, you know, the one adult who cares about them and is willing to advocate him for them in a school system, you know, they're looking at it and going, oh, maybe it just makes more sense to move down to Washington, right? It just makes more sense to like move to literally anywhere else that values us more. And so well, this idea, this too. like fear mongering that teachers could dare ask for like a dependable, reliable retirement is like good. Good. I hope. I wish him the best. You know, and same. You know, it's like all this sort of stuff. It's like, you know, who who are we advocating for in this process too? It's in, like, whose interests do you have in mind in telling teachers to basically get lost? I mean, this is also criticism coming from a guy who worked for the Coast Guard for twenty years and probably is doing okay in his own retirement benefits. And it's like, <laughs> it's it's strange to me to, you know, if, if you're a beneficiary of a government retirement system and you're trying to like cut everyone else out from that it seems strange to me i don't know yeah yeah um yeah i think that's all i have oh the 
the one other thing I wanted to talk about uh, was that we, there was the Alaska Climate Alliance was in town this week, which was uh, a whole bunch of organizations that have kind of banded together under this one banner. And they're all they were all here from all over the state. I met people from Anchorage and Fairbanks and Sitka and Ketchikan and, and people from here in Juneau that were that were on the ground hosting. And they were working on, you know, things like a green bank, more access to community solar projects, renewing and reinvigorating the renewable energy fund that exists. It, w- it was interesting to talk to them. I'll, I'll, I'll put this out as a separate episode, but I, I chatted with a bunch of them during First Friday uh, at the gallery as they sort of rolled through and um, had some good conversations. It was one of those moments for me where I'm like, oh, I'm firmly in, in my middle age now, and these are really, like, young, awesome people people who are like then kind of this next generation that's coming up and they're going to do great things. And it was that sort of inspiring. Uh, it was, it was inspiring to hear from them and to hear what they mm-hmm. had to say. Yeah. I'm looking forward to, yeah. Kind of unpacking that another time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's it for me today. Yeah, me too. All right. Well, we'll talk soon. Uh, have a, have a good one, Matt. Yeah. Thanks. Talk to you later. All right. Bye.